Except every patient. Uh, I accept every patient. But I mean, the reason is, is because you're, you're not going to do things the way you already do. Rub up against someone. But you're growing as if someone conflicts the way you Were there other cars smashed around you? Otherwise, you're just moonlighting. You know, like you're seeing you're learning the Chevy, feeling more comfortable. Going to, uh, oh, this is is very similar in like our knowledge is slight change in approach. I don't know. I would do that. Sounds really good. Me, I don't have anything else. Are they are they uh, residency trained physicians? Yeah. Already. <laughs> differential of chest pain or um, low risk of chest pain. We're specifically talking about um, when you've entered the spectrum of acute coronary syndrome. It's working. Um, I really do love working with you guys and talking to you guys. You guys are all great. Uh, I'm glad you come to the Thank you. Okay, if you've worked with me, and I think everyone has, you know I will 
sing the praises of Wikium all day. Um, I, I think it's um, probably useful in the clinic and inpatient too. Um, I love MRAP. Um, actually, definitely think that that's worth subscribing to. And then Life in the Fast Lane is an EKG blog. Uh, EKG, chest pain blog. Um, that is fantastic. Uh, really good. Really would suggest um, you just spend some time flipping through Life in the Fast Lane. Okay, um, ATS um, moves from unstable angina, uh, my chest hurts and it didn't used to, or it didn't used to hurt this bad, to in STEMI, my chest hurts and I have a positive trope, to STEMI, I've occluded an artery, uh, to I've occluded an artery and that's it, sudden cardiac death. Um, one important consideration uh, in ACS, when you're dealing with an ACS patient, is you're on the clock. Um, the longer you uh, drag your feet, you order the EKG and forget to check on it for another 20 minutes, or you loop back around, um, you have just killed uh, myocardium. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, if someone is having, uh, is infarcting their heart, uh, their morbidity and mortality are going to be longer things going on now for corrective medication. All right, let's talk about um, how we get to the diagnosis of it. This is your typical picture of a, of a person having chest pain. They um, are uh, elderly. Um, suddenly, they, while exerting themselves, they start to have left-sided chest pressure that goes to the left jaw, left shoulder, down the left arm. They get sweaty. They get nauseous. Um, you don't even need the EKG. That person needs to go to the cath lab. Um, even if the EKG didn't show what you were expecting, that person still needs to go to the cath lab. It's just subtle. It just hasn't. But unfortunately, ACS, coronary syndrome, is notorious for not having that typical picture of the elderly exertional chest pressure that goes to the left side and makes them sweaty and nauseous. If you are a woman, if you're diabetic, if you're elderly, and if you're not white, there's a, a decent chance that you're not going to present like that. And so it's important that... Um, that uh, number one, I think it's important that we kind of shake the, the term, this is atypical, or at least put our hope in the fact that this is atypical, um, because uh, I, a big chunk of the time, I mean, the, the paper that I read right before coming here said 20% and found all the way from four and a half up to 33, but, but somewhere around one in five don't have typical, uh, typical symptoms. Um, you run into things like patients describe it as sharp, and what they mean by sharp is it hurts bad. You know, they don't actually mean it's stabbing and searing and like finger point. They, they just mean it hurts bad, um, or they're hurting so badly that, that they can't think straight. And so you ask them yes, no questions, and they don't know. You know, they're, they're hardly focused. They're lightheaded. They're nauseous. And you're like, does it hurt when you take a deep breath? Uh, yeah. Like, you know, we can't we can't put all of our eggs in of the basket of like well they reported this um, and they look bad and so so and I should say this too that's on a patient who looks bad the the squirrely ones that look fine that they're texting and eating Doritos like you know like that if the clinical picture fits that this person's having something serious happen you you have to put less weight on the words they're telling you. 
because they're not able to. Um, these are the positive likelihood ratios. Quick reminder, positive likelihood ratio um, just means like a 2.0 is like a, it increases the chance by two that, that they have the outcome you're looking for. And so it increases the chance by two that they're having ACS in the middle of a chest pain episode if they already have known CAD. Um, two again, if they have worsening angina over 24 hours, um, 2.2 increased likelihood um, if the pain is similar to prior ischemia or if they report that, if it radiates to both arms, um, that does increase the chance 2.6 if they have a history of peripheral artery disease, but not necessarily CAD, uh, you know, subtlety there, but all their arteries are sclerosed if some of them are sclerosed. Um, if they've had an abnormal recent stress test, of course, that kind of speaks for itself. If you walk in the room and think, uh-oh, um, that actually bodes poorly for them, and if they have a high-risk heart score, 7 to 10. It's not often that we even get to the point where we calculate a heart score on someone who's that high. It's like they're in the cath lab, you know, they're bad. Um, okay, like I said, unstable angina is um, new or different chest pain. Um, that's the, uh, you've all known that since med school, nothing news there, but um, uh, someone comes in complaining of chest pain. Um, you guys have all probably heard me harp on you for this, uh, but why are they here today? Um, and if that's uh, the same pain that they always have, they probably didn't come if it's the same pain they always have. But if it happens to be the same pain they always have and, and daughter's in town and just said, you gotta go get it checked out, then that's actually stable angina. Um, and we don't necessarily have to chase that. Um, but if it's new or different, any more aggressive, um, occurring with 10 steps around the store rather than 100 steps, um, you probably need to start working. In STEMI is they have that newer worsening chest pain and now have an elevated troponin. Um, the nomenclature may be going away, but that's a type one in STEMI, whereas type two is just a demand. You know, they were in AFib with RVR for three months before they decided to come get it checked out and their troponins failed. They, they don't actually have a blockage anywhere. Um, a STEMI, of course, um, is when you have ST elevation. And the formal definition here is um, two millimeters in men over 40, and that's anterior if you're a V2, V3. Um, and if you're less than 40, if you're a young guy, um, it has to be higher. Um, young guys, most young guys have, not most, a lot of young guys have benign early repolarization, where every single lead um, will have ST elevation. And uh, if you see it in every lead and there's no reciprocal changes, that's not a STEMI, that's common. Um, would encourage you to, I should have put one in here that looked like benign early repolarization, but I'm just not thinking of it. Um, but we would encourage you to be comfortable with that. If, if you're looking at a guy who's 16 to 32, um, who is complaining of chest pain, it's very common that you'll see every single lead elevated. It's not pericarditis, it's not myocarditis, it's benign early repolarization. Um, and uh, in females, the cutoff is 1.5 millimeters, um, and uh, that's in V2, V3. And all other, all other leads and two contiguous leads, if you have more than a millimeter, that's a STEMI. Um, all right, some quick examples of STEMIs. Um, this is uh, pretty plain to see, hitting anterior elevations. And inferiorly, you have some depressions down here. Um, that's bad. 
Another big bad anterior, again with inferior um, depressions. A uh, big inferior stimmy, um, big bad 2-3 AVF and um, AVL is, um, if you looked at the circle chart, remember the circle chart that's impossible to memorize? Um, that's like upper, upper left. Um, and so if, if your inferior leads are down here, AVL is opposite that. And, and so you're gonna see depressions up there. All right. Yes, ma'am, please. With unstable angina, it sounds like it's a purely clinical diagnosis because you may not see EKG changes and you may not have a troponin change. 100%. Purely clinical, purely history. Yep. Um, and it helps. The majority of people who are diagnosed with unstable angina have known CAD. Um, if, you, if you are calling it unstable angina, um, that's in your differential of, of a new chest pain. But but it's pretty hard to call it unstable angina when, when you don't even know whether they have a coronary lesion. Known CAD means they had a cath. Known CAD means they've had a cath. They've had um, a, a coronary CTA, um, a CTA of the heart um, that showed um, calcifications or atherosclerosis, um, or they've had an abnormal stress test. Um, and, and frankly, I don't, Again, I don't distinguish a whole lot. If they have known peripheral artery disease, I mean, you can, you know, everything's calcified. They have carotid artery disease, they have coronary. Um, but but um, known CAD is, is um, history of, of a heart attack, um, or um, they've had either one of those three abnormal, abnormal tests CTA of the, of the heart, um, abnormal stress test, or now I should say this, there's a caveat there. If you, if there are some false positive stress tests, that happens. And so if it was never followed up on, if it was never followed up on with a, with a cath, um, you can't put all your eggs in it. The person for sure has CAD. I don't know, maybe 10% of them are falsely positive. But, but um, yeah, it's known CAD um, is unstable engine. But here's, here's the problem, okay. You guys who have worked with me know this is my favorite thing to do. Quiz question. Um, who are we going to pick on? It's okay. Anybody. Um, what is a STEMI? This is a little bit of what am I thinking question. What is a STEMI supposedly representing? Why do we get our... Okay. Transmural infarction. What causes that? Yeah. And a, a coronary artery is occluded. A STEMI is supposed to represent that a coronary artery is occluded. That's problematic though, because there are occlusions of coronary arteries that do not show up as STEMIs. Um, and there are STEMI mimics that, you know, hypercalcemia and some other things that look like STEMIs and aren't. But, but um, I don't care so much about, about false positives. They went to the cath lab and well, they didn't need it. Like, I care more about they needed to go and they didn't. Um, this is kind of interesting. Here in the last couple of years, uh, let me explain this real quick. Um, I think I think probably in 10 years, we're gonna not be using the term unstable angina and STEMI STEMI anymore. I think we're gonna be talking about it in terms of an occlusive myocardial infarction and a non-occlusive myocardial infarction. 
that's kind of where things are going in the last three, four years. It's, it takes 17 years on average for something to be mainstream from the time it enters the literature. So it may be longer than 10 years. But um, in 2018, this paradigm was proposed and it's, it's picking up steam and the big wigs all use this nomenclature <laughs> now. But of course, I just heard of it for the first time this week as I was researching. So, um, um, but I, I bet you this is where we're going. So this is problematic. Um, this paper in, in um, the cardiology journal, Heart Vasculature in 2020 said, under the current STEMI paradigm, 25 to 30% of in STEMI patients are found to have total occlusion on delayed cardiac catheterization using, using expert EKG interpretation instead of the strict STEMI criteria, which you know, is the 2.52, 1.51, all those things I showed you about how many millimeters of elevation. Cardiologists are able to reclassify 28% of NSTEMI as having an acute coronary occlusion responsive to immediate reperfusion. Um, so that's problematic. So a quarter of our NSTEMI patients were just like sitting on for 24 hours waiting for their delayed cath. And the way they spelled catheterization makes me think that's not in America. Um, so maybe it's the Brits that are killing all their hearts. <laughs> um, but still, that's problematic. Um, here's this paper from, uh, also from 2020. Um, in this paper, 40% of patients with an occlusive myocardial infarction did not meet STEMI criteria. Um, that's not good. Um, just based on the fact that this is older nomenclature, like before they necessarily did cardiac caths, like is that why? Um, is that because so the only thing they had at the time was inclusion? So this person's definitely having, I don't know. I think you're right. Yes, but this is also part of part of what's weird about medicine is a big chunk of what we're learning is going to be irrelevant in 25 years. We're doing it wrong. You know, like you just know that whatever we're doing and learning as cutting edge now is, is wrong and it will be changed. And um, as in the 40s was the first time EKGs became a thing. And they started to learn like, oh my gosh, we can predict when someone's about to die from this sticker on their chest. And then uh, 60s, 70s, um, we start cathing people and learn like, oh wow, you can tell where the blockage is. And then 80s, 90s, it's like, oh wow, you can actually predict fairly well that this pattern means that it's blocked and you got to go now. And, and so, I mean, just now, you know, we're getting to the point where we realize in, and in the seventies, eighties is when we started calling it STEMI and STEMI um, when we learned what it was and we're, we're realizing now, like, shoot, we're, we're missing some of these blockages that we could have done something about. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, Okay, um, so this is, these are some commonly missed occlusive MIs, just to switch to the other nomenclature. STEMI equivalent would be another way I would say that, but some commonly missed. So, so technically, technically that to that is, is like maybe one millimeter if you hallucinate just right. <laughs> maybe kind of sort of there a tiny little bit. Um, but what, um, what these guys who are coming up with the, the 25 and 40% numbers are suggesting that, that any degree of ST elevation in the inferior leads with an AVL depression, remember AVL is opposite 
inferior um, is likely to be an occlusive MI. So this patient um, where I pulled this EKG from, this was not a St. John patient, but this patient was labeled an NSTEMI. And by the technical definition, um, I think they could have gotten away with that. Like that's probably less than one millimeter there. That's for sure less than one millimeter. And, and those are the two contiguous leads there. Yeah. So if you see that EKG at St. John's, do you call cardiology? Like if we're on at three in the morning, yeah. do, you see that? do we call, do we make the call or? If you are on at three in the morning and your patient looks like they're having a STEMI, now if it's the Doritos texting patient, probably not. But, but um, what, what I'm hoping to emphasize over the course of this is that your history and your context um, matter a whole lot. If the patient looks bad, even if the EKG doesn't, you should probably be calling cards. Um, and, and that's for two reasons. Number one, um, in 10 years, we'll know about 20 more EKG patterns that we don't know about yet that are actually occlusive MIs. And all of us relatively are rookies at this. You know, and when we're all 70 and 80 years old, we'll be Telling the stories of all the all the EKGs that we've read. I mean, we will have we will have read twenty thousand by then. But but for now, we haven't seen everything there is to see. And so if if the patient looks bad in front of you, regardless of what the EKG looks like, I'd be I'd call. Um, but, um, but yes, to answer your question, if I if I saw this walk through the ER, um, I would I would call them emergently in the right context. Yeah, patient comes in. Hey, my chest hurts. Yeah, I did have a little bit of jaw pain. Then, like, that's enough. Let's do it. Um, part of the hard part is too is that um, residents and attendings um, we have to put in a lot of work for our patients. It's going to be on you guys, and it's on me to have an interest in learning this stuff, even though no one's telling me to. You know, like. Um, you could totally be the doctor and IHI isn't like this. So I don't, I don't even think there's someone in this room like this, but, but there are plenty of doctors who, once they become attendings, uh, they're, they know what they're going to know for their career. Um, but, um, it is, it is on you to scroll through the life in the past lane and, and be up to date on, on what's happening in the EKG world. It's, it's on you to, to know what subtle findings on EKG you're looking for. Okay. Um, so this is this is a weird one that you wouldn't necessarily expect a new bifascicular block, um, which is hard to identify anyway. Luckily, luckily the EKG interpretations are pretty dang good at actually finding bifascicular blocks. But if it's a new one in the right context, um, that's someone you know. It, again, I, I shouldn't be able to get them chest pain free. Right. If they are truly having an occlusive MI, um, uh, I, I shouldn't be able to just give a dose of nitro and they're like, I feel much better. You know, like that, that's not going to work. And so in the right context with this EKG, I'm calling, I'm calling cards and saying, hey, I, I'm worried about this. Um, has anyone heard of hyperacute T waves? Um, the, the basic premise is that infarcted infarcted cardiac myocytes are giving off local potassium and just locally making 
the T waves bigger. Does that make sense? And so it's not diffuse. It's not, they're not bathed in potassium. That makes it all, it's inferiorly. So, so this is what makes this T wave different, which is kind of subtle. It, it really is, it's subtle. Um, this T wave is a normal size T wave if that weren't the QRS that preceded it. Your T wave should be proportional and smaller than the height of your QRS. So like, you see how big this QRS is? That has a normal T wave behind it. It should be smaller than, same with this and all these other ones. But here all of a sudden, like we have a dinky QRS and a big old fat P wave. And the other thing that's different about this is it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more symmetrical. Uh, normally you have a little bit more of a slope up, a steeper slope up. Um, it's subtle, it's really subtle. That's the most subtle one I've ever seen, by the way. It gets way better than that. Like most of them will not be that bad. That's an extreme example. Um, but that again is an example of why if you look at that and you're like, man, I'm not sure, but the patient looks bad in front of you. This patient will look bad in front of you. And there are so many subtle EKG changes that you don't know and you may not know, but if the patient looks bad, it is, it is worth a call. Because time is muscle. All right, uh, here's another subtle one, right? We would probably just call this NSTEMI with a little bit of depression. Um, but, but the problem is, is that there's no leads on the chest that are measuring what's happening directly behind the heart. And so the only thing you have in an EKG right on the front of the chest is reciprocal changes uh, on the opposite side. And so um, if you see anteriorly in this anterior septal V1 through V4, if you see anteriorly that they are having uh, ST depression, um, that's, that's a posterior MI until proven otherwise. And you, you literally get a posterior EKG. Have you guys ever heard of that or seen that? Um, the, um, you'll probably have to Google it because when I tell you, you'll forget and that's great. Here's an here's a offshoot, you ready for this? Medicine's weird and your job is harder than mine because you have to know more than I do. You can't just say, go see your PCP. But, um, <laughs> Um, if you've even just heard of this, like everything can be looked up. That's why I love WikiM is because more and more, you know, our medical knowledge doubles every seven years, more and more, it's important that you know where to look stuff up quickly and less that you haven't memorized. Um, and if, if you know, you've heard of, wait, isn't it like anterior depressions a thing or isn't a posterior MI a thing? Let me see what, what that looks like again. You can at least look it up. You can look up where to tell the nurse to put the leads, but um, it grows across the back of the shoulder blades, um, seven on the lateral edge, eight, V8 um, goes right uh, under the, the tip of the scapula and V9 is paraspinal in the middle. Um, and that will show, you're, you're just replacing V1 through three. That will show ST elevation when you do that. Um, kind of bizarre. Activated cath lab. Um, but what gives you the clue that is you have a patient in front of you who looks like they're having a STEMI, <laughs> right? Like you have a sick patient. Um, and, and so you're looking at this like, I don't know, like this doesn't, this doesn't read STEMI. Like 
gosh, maybe it is one of those posters. Let's try it. Um, be suspicious of sick patients. Okay, um, unstable angina and instim, you have the same treatment, um, which is handy. Um, they both get aspirin, it is um, a non enteric coated aspirin. Um, enteric coated aspirin is designed to go easy on your stomach and is therefore absorbed over a long period of time. And by the time it's all absorbed, they've infarcted a chunk of their heart. So, non enteric coated. Um, which is the big one that reduces the big one that reduces mortality. All the other stuff we do, um, I mean, Cathlet does, but but aspirin is the big one that reduces mortality. Um, they either get Plavix or Berlinta, um, a load, and then just um, I don't ever have to mess with the daily stuff. But but um, again, you guys have to know more than I do. Um, they either get uh, so they dual antiplate. Yes, ma'am. So most of the time, by the time like we see them, um, they've already gotten the aspirin, and that like they take less. Like you know what I mean. So do you read between those? No, just once that day. Yep. If they got it um, now, if it's, I typically draw the line at like twelve hours because there's people that like I don't know call the MS and then cooked in the waiting room forever, and if they're having recurrence of pain. Um, I go ahead and give it to them. And this is interesting too. It only takes about 162 milligrams of aspirin to block every one of your platelets. So 325 is probably overdoing it. Um, but I you know when people have a headache, they pop three of them. You know, it's like you're not, you're not hurting anything, but but um, but you may see people give 162 of aspirin, and that's fine. They're 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 probably blocking every platelet by doing that. Um Berlinta has a better um, um, mortality rate if they're going to get a stent. Um, or I don't think it's mortality. I think it's reocclusion morbidity. Um, it's something like six to ten percent less reocclusion. And so, if you're going to, if they're potentially going for cath, and if they're being admitted for chest pain, that is a potential. Um, all of our cardiologists prefer it, and um, uh, just because of the, the lower reocclusion of your stent rate. Um, as you guys know better than I do, it's, it's through the roof cost-wise. And so after their first free month, everyone switches to Plavix, but at least they got a month of, of better, better protection from their reocclusions. Uh, and then if a patient gets loaded with Plavix, can you do into daily after that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I wouldn't. Yeah, you can swap them. Totally. Yeah. There's a um, like a trans, whatever you call the switch algorithm on up to date, and up to date also Berlinta's first line. I think. Yeah. True. Whether you load with six hundred or three hundred is a hot topic. Um, you can call cards if someone's going for an intervention soon. Uh, most of the time. You'll be loaded. 180 is not hot. Okay. Um, there's also good evidence that um, they get anticoagulation. If if you're worried about them, particularly if um, uh, I'm not talking about the patients, I'm not talking about the patients that are a chest pain rule out. 
We don't automatically give Lovenox to everyone who's getting a stress test in the morning. Um, this is for known CAD. They're having unstable angina and they're getting admitted for that. Um, they get anticoagulation. Um, if they are going for a procedure, why do we like, this is maybe an insulting question. You guys are way above this, I'm sure. But why do we like heparin over Lovenox? Okay, it was insulting. Yeah, you can turn it off in a split second. So if, they, if they're going for procedure or there's a chance they will, just do heparin. Um, if you've already been told medical management only, Lovenox may do a little bit better. They prefer Lovenox, um, but, but if there's a chance they're going for procedure, they need to be able to turn it off. Right, like KD also, it's our AKI and the decision that you make. Yeah, so uh, I'm sorry, we, we, if you have a kidney damage or something, or a CKD, totally. totally. You either got to give low dose Lovenox or, or just do that. Okay, um, STEMI, the big one. And again, STEMI slash occluded myocardial infarction. Um, this is a, this is a um, tough one, especially if you guys are going to be moonlighting or working um, in an austere environment. I know some of you probably work. Um, a lot of you will be using thrombolytics. So if, if from the time the STEMI was identified, whether EMS or when they walked in the door, if from the time the STEMI was identified uh, to 90 minutes later, it's not gonna be possible to get them a stent, whether in your hospital or another one. They get thrombolytics, they get TPA or TNK. And then they can still go, just because they got the TPA, TNK doesn't mean they can't still go for PCI, they still can. Uh, especially if they're not totally stabilized by the lytics. But, but um, you have, now some people say 120. I'm just like, I'm simple-minded. So, so I need one number and not 90 to 120, just pick a number. And so I went with 90 minutes. Um, if it's going to be an hour and a half from the time the STEMI was identified, whether that's EKG on EMS, um, pre-hospital, or in your hospital when they walked in the door, which of course doesn't make any sense. I mean, we should be considering like the time they started having pain, you know, like if they had pain literally right outside the door and it's gonna be 91 minutes, are you not taking that person to cath as opposed to it started yesterday and they just now got the EKG, like that's silly. But medicine is silly. Um, this, these are the official recommendations and this is what you'll be, this is the legal standard too, like what you'll be held to. If you held, held them in your, ER podunk waiting room while you're moonlighting, waiting to go to cath in a big hospital and didn't give them lytics and it ends up being two and a half hours. Like that's what you'll be able to do. They're 90 minutes. Okay, um, they all get aspirin. They all get a load of a second antiplatelet, preferably Berlinta, and they get the heparin bolus. Um, all of the above. Now you're not giving heparin if they got the thrombolytics. You're not doing both, but yes. Does they say they have contraindications to TNK or TPA at that point? Yeah, um, get them to PCI as soon as you can, but you're talking about known brain tumor, recent yeah. brain surgery. Yeah. yeah, it has to, same as stroke, you have to have no contraindications to these meds. Yes, yes ma'am. So, okay, so the situation where a patient gets the thrombolytic 
Are they still going to camp at some point? It depends how they do. So if they have um, uh, resolution of their pain, their EKG normalizes, they're hemodynamically stable, they're not having acute heart failure, they're not in VTAC, then they're probably not. Um, I mean, they may, they may once things calm down in two weeks and see if there's but the assumption in that scenario where I explained that they got totally better is that they had a soft plaque that you just sliced. And now all they have left over is the butter and sugar that is sclerosed for years. And they might need that stented non-emergently as well. So are there situations where they get this novel leathering? They're still urgent, like you don't- like, 100%. You don't like turn down, like turn down the cardiologist saying, I'll take it to cath. Like, oh, I gave him TPA, you know? No, 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 100%. Um, I, would, I would say more often than not, they're still going to go to cath. Um, and- um, it's called rescue PCI, by the way, if you've heard that term after thrombolytics, it's called rescue PCI. I don't know. That was probably some guy thought of that. I don't really know why it's called that, but after you've, um, given lytics and, um, if they have any of the above that I mentioned, their EKG hasn't normalized. Um, they're still having pain. They're having signs of acute CHF any electric instability, VTAC, ectopy, heart block, whatever, um, they're, they're going to cath. It's, a lot of things have to be made normal for them to not go to cath emergently. I guess just my question is like, so thrombolytics getting a cath, like, do they do well? Like, I'm sure yeah. Like, going into an artery, you're manipulating arteries and they're not going to clot. I, I know. I know. It's scary. Um, you're certainly at risk for uh, at higher risk for um, pseudoaneurysms and big hematomas, um, but all things that are non-life-changing. Um, if you move from having an EF of 55 to an EF of 25, that's life-changing. So they, they do it. Yeah. You're certainly at risk though of, now you would not do it if you had any of those contraindications because it's life-changing to have a brain bleed from your tumor. It's, you know, life, there's, there's specific contraindications on MD calc to TPA. Instantly. I mean, your, your, your rate limiting step is how quickly they can get to the nurses and how quickly they can get the pump set up. It's all started simultaneously. Anything else? Yes. Uh, we're lighting, we see a STEMI, and then we do this, get them on bullets, start a drip, and just table. Do a cath. Yeah. We can get there in time. Correct, correct. And so um, if you're moonlighting and a STEMI walks in, number one, most of you have my phone number, it would always be okay to like text me and call like, hey, this looks bad, and we'll figure it out. Um, number two, um, I'm going to tell you that, what are you doing calling me? Call a cardiologist. Um, um, yeah, you're, you're on the phone instantly with the two or three places closest to you. And, and if in 10, 20 minutes, you can't establish that they're going to get a stent um, within 90 minutes of identification, then yeah, you're going to pull the trigger on lytics because time is muscle. And you're still going to urgently call the ambulance to take them to the hospital. Yep. You're still trying to secure, you're right. Your, your goal in the conversation of the cardiologist um, is establishing whether or not he can get his team in within your window to get them reperfused. 
Um, and if it's going to take him, if they're all driving in from a ways away, and it's going to take him two and a half hours from the time it was identified, you're going to push lytics and he's still probably going to take him two and a half hours from now. But you're going to go ahead and give them lytics. There's certain things you have to do to make sure they're stabilized before you can ship them out. So you can't transfer somebody who's like. Well, they have to be stabilized to the best of your ability. And so if they need a surgeon and are bleeding into their abdomen, you are not going to have them stable. Um, if they need, it is, it is reasonable. It is reasonable that, that a person who has a GCS of three and is not breathing on their own um, needs an airway before they leave. Like that's, um, and honestly, if you guys were moonlighting and like felt iffy on airways, number one videos, save everybody video scopes. Number two, your local medics will probably feel good about it. You can always call your medics and be like, hey, I need help. I got a bad airway. And um, yeah, just go ahead and cry come. Oh. Caleb, he'll cry come for us. Um, cocky surgeons. Um, um, That's really good. So you call the, the medics. Yeah, totally. Because they will have done hundreds. I mean, if you guys are in the middle of nowhere and you know, that old crusty medic that uh, every other word is the F-bomb, like, he's going to save that guy's life. Um, Have you ever done the percutaneous wires? Only on cadavers. I haven't ever had to do that on a person. Or a blind person. Um, I'd be more than happy to talk airways with you guys sometime, too. Um, you should be um, rest assured if you're moonlighting that the vast majority of um, a huge percentage of your airway problems can be temporized with an eye gel or a, a um, LMA. Uh, have you guys heard of what I'm talking about? These um, supraglottic above the glottis airway devices. It's not an ET tube that goes into the trachea, so you don't have to be able to see anything. You literally cram it to the back of their throat until it won't go any further. And it occludes the esophagus. And the only place the air can be exchanged is in the trachea. Um, it, is, it has saved you temporarily. It'll, it'll buy you the time you need to transfer them. That, that can be you stabilize the airway for now. Unless the problem was angioedema or like something occlusive, you know, the superglottic airway isn't working. But if they're just not breathing, Yes. So one question. So there's their NSTEMI, but then their cardiogenic shock, then oh, so <laughs> like we ship them out, but then they like, do we send them to that or a drip or what do we do? Um, so um, if they are in cardiogenic shock and um, it's from ACS, whether STEMI or um, um, I can give you the real quick, there's a whole lot that could be wrong. Um, and so I can give you the real quick. Number one, um, you're never wrong. If someone's unstable, you're never wrong to just start some pressors, um, get going on starting some pressors. Um, if, if they're um, blood pressure, if their MAP is less than about 50, they're not perfusing their heart anyway, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know what the 
heart equivalent of a penumbra is. They're not perfusing it um, if, if their map is low. And so um, if you're moonlighting and they're in cardiogenic shock, there's at least a decent chance that they're in heart block. Um, lots of them are. And so you need to be, uh, you need to be considering or look hard for that. And if they're bradycardic or in heart block, you need to be pacing them, externally pacing them. Again, really, if you guys want to call me, we can figure this out. Um, but um, um, you should be externally pacing them. Or if, um, if you're like, they're really not in bradycardic, it's not, it's not just because of their bradycardia. You think it's because their heart just isn't squeezing at all. Either epinephrine or dobutamine is what they need. Or milrinone. Quick on, quick off is epinephrine and dobutamine. Anything else? How are we doing on time? Oh man, I'm sorry guys. We're, we're like seriously running low. I did too much. Okay, this is all stuff that um, gets a lot of attention but doesn't make a difference in their survival. So um, nitroglycerin, um, there's a couple, one more. <laughs> theory of how it works is it's dilating the artery. Um, but of course, what's problematic with that theory is that we actually know it dilates veins more than arteries and it reduces preload. And so um, uh, anyway, it's if they're having um, an instemi or unstable angina, nitro should be able to relieve their pain. If nitro is not relieving their pain at all, I'm, I'm calling it cards. Um, I do throw fentanyl at them um, too. And if they, if they look great after like 50 or hundred of fentanyl just one time and aren't having any more pain and, and EKG still looks good, um, I may just call the consult line as opposed to the cardiologist directly. But, but um, if you start them on oxygen, just empirically, um, you're likely to cause uh, more damage. Um, hyperoxygenation, uh, just causes the free radicals and increases the size of the damage. Um, and then again, opioids. Um, in, in reality, we all give them opioids, um, but that's not a free pass that they're okay just because they seem more comfortable. If you've masked their ischemic pain, uh, they may still be infarcting. Um, the beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and statins are important, but not emergently. Um, that's uh, great. Okay, here's where people mess up. They forget, they check one EKG in someone who looks bad and forget to check another one. Um, if, in someone who looks bad, um, if, if there's an occlusive myocardial infarction, the EKG will be evolving. Um, and, um, and so you really should be getting uh, one at time zero, one at 15 minutes, one at 30 minutes. And all the while you're throwing medical management at him, you're throwing nitro at him, you're um, aspirin, Berlin to all that stuff. And if you're not able to get them chest pain free, even as the EKGs are improving, either their EKG will stay the same and they'll become chest pain free and you're, you don't have to consult cards emergently, or they won't become chest pain free 
and you should be calling them saying, hey, I'm, I'm worried about this person who has, uh, looks bad and EKG is okay, but I haven't been able to get a pain-free. Um, we did talk about this, if, if it's an in-STEMI, but um, hemodynamically, they're not doing well. Um, whether hemodynamically or electrically, they're having lots of ectopy, they're at a heart block. Um, if there's electrical or hemodynamic instability, you need to call. If they are having signs that their heart is infarcting and they are not pushing blood forward, they're having worsening CHF. Uh, or your, your pain, um, your pain continues to worsen. Or I think this, if there's a big jump in the troponin, I'm not talking about like 0.5 to 0.7, I'm talking about like 0.5 to 3, like the person I admitted to Ella Kuchma yesterday. <laughs> um, um, 0.5 to 3, like, oh, crap, that's ongoing ischemia. And um, we weren't sure, we weren't sure initially whether the ESRD was playing a big role in that moderately elevated troponin. But then when the next one was like 3, well, that's not a good one. Um, <laughs> But here are the subtle signs of occlusive MIs on EKG. And, and just because you'll get into a fight with a cardiologist if you really stick to your guns on this, which I'm not saying you shouldn't. If your patient needs an advocate, you'd be there asking. But um, scarbosa is the only thing that's formally recognized as a STEMI equivalent. But, but again, the literature is changing all the time. Um, um, does anyone know what scarbosis is? Okay, we'll go over it um, because how many of our patients have left bundles? Like everybody over 50. Um, the winter T waves um, are another hyperacute type of T wave you need to be able to recognize. That's the elevation in ABR and the S linger criteria, which I've learned about this week. Okay, here's um, Scarbosa's criteria. Too many words. We're just going to look at pictures. Um, so this is a left bundle branch block, yes? Um, and I'll stop at five, but I'm not on any time crunch. I know that you people have kids and lives and are hungry. And so I can stay and chat or we can do this, but please feel free to get up and walk out. I won't even be offended. Um, Scarbosa's criteria, or if, do we need to shut the room down too? I mean, okay. Um, uh, before we talk about scarbosis, let's talk about left bundle branch blocks. Um, if the QRS is up in a, in a left bundle branch block, the T wave is down and vice versa is true too. If the QRS is down, the T wave is up. Um, and, um, and that's just kind of a neat way to, when you, when you see an ER doctor, especially like an ER resident, um, trying to interpret um, whether a patient with a left bundle has ischemia on their EKG, you'll like hear them muttering to themselves while they point with their pencil, like down, up, down. Making sure that the QRS is up and the T is down, the QRS is up and the T is down, and when the QRS is down, the T is up. And if it's like that, you're good. Unless, unless, um, uh, okay, unless the, the down is down too far on the T wave or the up is up too high. Your space, so that makes really good sense, Eric. <laughs> okay. Um, 
<laughs> okay, that space right there from the, from the um, PQ line just to that J point, that space should be no more than 25% the depth of this. What I just say made it make any sense? Yeah, I can say that again. So this this line right here, and I'm 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 um, cutting off. So this this isoelectric line, like this, is where electricity is neutral right here. Is that you agree on that? Um, if the if the um, the R wave above that isoelectric line is more than 25% what's below the line, then that's inappropriately elevated ST segment. Does that make sense? It's too high. You should see, because every time you look at an EKG of a left bundle in someone who's having chest pain, if you don't know scarbosis criteria, you should think, oh, they're all elevated. Because they are. I mean, every single ST segment is elevated. That's a normal left bundle. That's, that's what a left bundle looks like. What you're looking for is one that's too high. And so the ST segment, let's see, right there, that's half, that's a quarter. Okay, so it would start like right here if it were inappropriately high. Same page there. And the same counts for if it's too low. If your QRS is up, so right there, that's half, that's a quarter. If your QRS is up and, and your, your ST segment started right here instead, that would be inappropriately low. And the term that we use, who knows why, is discordance. Um, um, when, when it's inappropriately high or low on the opposite side of the QRS. You, you, get, you get a quarter of the, of the height or depth of the QRS until it's inappropriate. And it just so happens that a ventricularly paced rhythm looks the exact same as a left bundle. And it applies perfectly in a paced rhythm too the exact same criteria. Okay, before I move on from that, how are we doing? Anybody have any questions? Truly, this is tough, and, and it took me years of looking at it. I would love to try to answer questions. Well, just to clarify, if, uh, if we, um, this is probably stating the obvious, but if, this, if we can prove that this is a bundle, we don't care about scarbosis. And am I, oh. So it used to be, we don't necessarily think of new left bundle as automatic um, cath lab activation anymore. Oh, so it has to be, it has to meet scarbosis. Uh, a new left bundle probably goes in the same category as inverted T waves, or maybe some subtle ST depression as like, eh, oh, well, so if you see ST depression, that person has a bad heart, but you certainly see inverted T waves that are not all bad. Some of them, that's just what their new EKG looks like. Um, left bundles um, used to be universally considered a STEMI equivalent and, and no more. If um, it's, um, I don't know if new left bundle was on our list of like likelihood ratios. It increases the likelihood that there is an event happening, but it's not a guarantee that there is. And so, especially if they meet scarbosis criteria in a new left bundle, then you're activating that's a STEMI equivalent. Um, if it's just a new left bundle um, and the patient looks bad, I'm still calling them because the patient looks bad. And I'm like, hey, I have an abnormal EKG. Um, you want to take them emergently. Um, it's at least worth a call, but it's not an automatic 
for fire alarm. Are we on the same page there? All right, so this is discordance when the EKG and the T wave are on the opposite side. So you've gotten two out of the three criteria already. The, the third criterion is a little bit easier. If the QRS and the T wave are on the same side, concordance, that's bad. They're not supposed to be. Like I said, when you're reading an EKG of uh, in a left bundle branch block or paste rhythm, um, you should see that the QRS and the T wave are on opposite sides, down, up, down, up, down, up, up, down, up, down, up, down. And if, if they're not, if you see one where they're both like up, up, like, uh-oh, that's not supposed to be true. If the QRS and the J point are on the same side of the line, either up, up, or QRS and J point, both below, those are both ischemic STEMI equivalents. We're tracking. I might have the same question, but so we're looking specifically at the J point. We can't just look at it. like that bottom right corner. I would look and think just looking at the T wave that it's opposite the QR. Yes, forgive me if I've been unclear. Thank you for that. You're looking at, at where the ST segment or the J point, where the ST segment initiates, where it starts, or the, or the J point. Yeah. And just so we're all using the same language, the J point is where your ST segment starts. That's, that's this knot right here. Yes, you're looking at the J point. Okay. And I, I X'd out five. It used to be five. And then we've learned that wasn't. That wasn't specific enough. It's it's now twenty five percent. That's that's just the new rule. But I couldn't find a low a uh, yeah, graphic that looked like that. So all right, how are we doing? All I really care about is that you know what scarbosis is, that you've heard of it, and the next time you see a patient you're worried about with a left bundle, you can think, oh, there's a thing where people have STEMI equivalents and left bundles, and you just Google STEMI equivalent left bundle, and it will pop up. And that's what you do until, and you will do it 15 times until you're like, I know. but that's, that's medicine now. As long as you've heard of it and you, something triggers in your brain. Oh yeah, I, I gotta look this up. Okay, um, so real quick. Um, and again, if you gotta run, please do, we're after five. I'm good, my son's asleep. Okay, um, this, is a, this is a paced rhythm. Um, we see pacer spikes here. Is this ventricularly or atrially paced? Bilaterally. Right. And just because some people surely don't know, how did you know it was ventricularly paced? It's the one right before the QRS complex. And guessing. You are a good guesser. Um, does anyone know why they know it's ventricularly? Because if it were atrially paced, the electricity would be going through the AV node and you'd have a narrow QRS. Are we making sense? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So um, it's a ventricularly paced rhythm. And, and look, they're even throwing out P waves once in a while, but oh well, we'll pop them anyway. Um, and um, here we have, uh oh. The QRS and the J point are on the same side of the line. Um, it's a down, down. 
QRS and JPoint are on the same side. It's, that's not supposed to be that way. So that's Scarbosa's criteria. All right, let's see again. Okay, here we go again. QRS, um, the, the, this always confused me. I don't know if it does you too. You're probably smarter than I am. There's a deflection down first. So how do I know if I count this as a down QRS or an up? It's whatever the majority of the QRS sits, whatever side the majority of the QRS sits on is your power QRS, okay? So this is an up QRS with a J point that's above the line. That's not supposed to be. Same, same, yep. Okay, here's the winter T waves, um, high peaked T waves in the precordial leads. Um, and that's the main thing I care that you notice the ST depression uh, there if, if high peak T waves. So this is, this is just a particular version of hyper acute T waves, inappropriately peaked T waves. And surprisingly, this is what you get. If you had someone have a heart attack literally in front of you in the ER um, where you could get an EKG within one minute, this is what it would look like before it was a stent. Um, before the ST segment goes up, there are the winter T waves. And so you, this is a STEMI equivalent. You need to know this is in five minutes, this will be a stent or eight or 12 or however fast their heart is. But in minutes, this will be a stent. Um, but again, this is hyperkalemia, local hyperkalemia causing big, bad peaked T waves. All right, again, inappropriately high T waves. Inappropriately high T waves. 2% um, of LADs for winter T waves. Okay, um, when you have um, so ST elevation and AVR. AVR is classically ignored. It's like it doesn't point to any one particular part of the heart. It doesn't count. But if you have AVR elevation and depressions in every other lead, like this person, um, you are having global myocardial ischemia. And so the next time you have a patient whose blood pressure is 40 over 20, this is probably what their EKG looks like. Next time you have an AFib RVR patient with um, in a uh, heart rate of 160 and they're not able to perfuse, you know their trope's gonna be positive because they've been going 160. Um, they're not able to perfuse their whole heart. They will be depressed in all leads except for AVR, which will be elevated. Um, the problem is in, um, in the absence of like hypotension or a fast heart rate or a good reason to be hypoperfusing your entire heart, it might be pointing to a big LAD uh, occlusion, a very proximal LAD occlusion. Um, now, typically, if someone has a true 100% occlusion, that's the sudden cardiac death. All, all at once, your entire heart gets no blood flow. That's not going to work. Um, but typically, these people have like 95% lesions if you see an EKG like this. All right. Um, I said all that. Great. Here's one that um, uh, I think you would believe. We'll just look at it. Um, we talked about um, the uh, subtle inferior lines are easy to miss. And here's AVR elevation. Again, AVR elevation is um, not just to be ignored. But when you see 
anterior depressions uh, and an inferior subtle elevation. Um, uh, this has been described just in the last two or three years as a STEMI equivalent and is not yet recognized formally in America, but um, elsewhere in the world it is. Uh, as long as you know it exists. That's all I have to about. All right, here's some opinions that are not uh, shared by every single person. Um, nitro, um, all you're likely to do when you give nitro to someone who you know is having an occlusive MI is drop their blood pressure. Um, highly unlikely you're going to get them pain-free if they have big tombstone nasty STEMI. Um, highly unlikely you're going to get them pain-free. Um, and there's at least a decent chance, and gosh, I wish you guys know this. Is there a word that means penumbra of the heart? Like the still might survive, but currently ischemic portion of the heart that hasn't totally infarcted yet? Maybe there's a word for that. But if you, if you drop their pressure from 140 to 110 by giving them a dose of nitro, you're going to kill more myocytes. And so it's, it's a reasonable thing to give someone nitro who's having an instemi or who is having angina, and you're just trying to um, uh, maybe dilate that artery a slight little bit more and get a little bit more blood flow through there. But um, if they are infarcting heart, you're just going to drop their pressure. And you're not going to make them pain free. Um, in fact, they're already semi likely if they're having a heart infarction to develop cardiogenic shock anyway, and you may just push them closer to that, um, giving them a 30 point blood pressure head start. Uh, um, okay, I've already made this point, but, but we overuse and over depend on atypical chest pain given the number of, of uh, people that have atypical symptoms. Um, if someone is suffering, they are not in the right mind to give you a clear answer on the exact nature of their pain. People use the word sharp to mean, um, they use the word sharp to mean it, it, it hurts bad. Um, and so I would not bank on, on atypical symptoms if the patient looks bad. Now, if you're trying to build up your chart in a patient you're not worried about, I do this all the time. Um, if you're like, this person came in with a bag of Doritos, ate an entire burrito um, during the ER visit that I, and, and also complained of the atypical features, I'm, I'm not worried about that patient. Um, there, so this is a hot take because just this summer, the um, Journal of the American College of Cardiology uh, gave people a one-year warranty on their heart if they've had a recent negative stress test. Um, but um, we have plenty of anecdotal experience and literature that um, that was probably an inappropriate guideline. Um, all it does is tell you, you didn't have ischemia in that moment. Um, and it tells you, it tells you that, that um, at that point, you did not have likely, because it's only like 85% sensitive, right? 85% chance that you did not have um, occlusive coronary artery disease, which we count as more than 50%, occlusive mild, uh, cardiac coronary artery disease um, when they did it. But 
The problem is people who come in with chest pain, we're not trying to answer the question necessarily. Have you eaten enough butter and sugar over your lifetime to have built up a, a plaque that is now causing symptoms? We're trying to answer the question, have you ruptured a plaque that now has a soft plaque in it that's causing what was 40% stenosis, but is now 90, causing your chest pain? Am I making sense? And a, a stress test from a month ago doesn't tell you if they ruptured a plaque. Uh, okay. Um, repeat the EKG early and often. If the patient looks bad in front of you, call cards because we can't know everything. We don't know everything. You may be looking at the EKG saying, oh, it looks pretty good, but time is hard. And if the patient looks bad, it's worth a call. Let someone who has done a fellowship make the call. Um, and in STEMI, um, I mean, this is really the same point as number two, but formally, legally, the recommendation is in STEMI, who is unstable or looks bad, also goes to emergency care. Okay, that's the whole thing. And we can do a Kahoot if you want, but I don't have to hold you hostage. Um, any questions, anything to clarify or leave? Specifically, Penumbra is is infarcted to, or to, yeah, infarcted tissue that might die, but it might not. And it's not necessarily the brain tissue, but in medicine, we only use it for the brain tissue. So you would just kind of be using the word technically correct. Oh, like cardiac hemorrhage. I like so, it. But uh, it's not just, it's not widely recognized. Permissive hypertension. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.